Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Minister, did you ask your colleagues on the Chinese Communist Party Climate Committee whether or not they would quit interfering in Canadian democracy, or did you leave that alone? I have spoken with human rights uh, issues when I when I when I was in in, in China uh, just last week. I Canadian have democracy. Question so. question. Uh, next question. So things got a little awkward for uh, Stephen Gobel, the environment minister, who for some reason decided to to show up today in Quebec City at the Conservative Party convention. Yes, look, uh, the minister was in China just recently for this uh, environmental event uh, for whatever reason. I mean, it just seemed really ill-timed for any cabinet minister to to go to China, especially on this, where we're lending our good name and reputation uh, to uh, what China's trying to do through this uh, this environmental committee. So maybe it's something uh, that that he could have avoided. Or if he's going to go, then let's press these issues, right? We're now getting an inquiry into the issue of foreign interference, and we just had a cabinet minister who was there, didn't even raise the issue. Couldn't even comment on it when asked about it today. That's that's not an encouraging sign. But yes, it is, I guess, encouraging that after months of delay and foot dragging, there is now going to be a judicial inquiry into this whole issue of foreign interference. Now, won't focus on just China, which I, I think is interesting. And to be sure, there are issues of concern around countries like Russia, Iran. But ultimately, really, this is about the extent to which China has attempted to interfere in Canadian elections and Canadian democracy and also what the government knew of that, and what the government did about that. Are we really going to get the whole story here from this inquiry? I want to get some reaction uh, from someone who's been, A, watching all of this very closely, but B, become a bit of a central character in all of this, uh, since he was uh, the subject of some of those interference attempts by China. Uh, Michael Chong is the conservative MP for uh, Willington Halton Hills. He's also the conservative party, the opposition uh, shadow foreign minister, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Mr. Chong, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Let's start with your reaction to the announcement. We finally now have the inquiry. What are your thoughts? Well, it's come at last, finally, after too much foot-dragging from this government. Uh, For years, Beijing has been interfering in our democracy in a variety of ways. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, many, many people, including uh, the conservative opposition, called for the government to call a public inquiry that, after months of delay, they finally got around to doing it. Are you concerned at all about the the scope of the mandate of this inquiry? It seems like things have been broadened a little bit beyond the issue of what China did and what the government knew and did about it. What about that side of it? Yeah, I am a little concerned about it. I think that, uh, you know, the terms of reference don't appear to give the judge leading the inquiry access to cabinet competences, which means that not all the information will be available uh, to the judge. And so that is concerning. I think we saw similar uh, a similar problem with uh, the inquiry into uh, you know into the uh, the convoy protests in Ottawa again um, the judge noted in that inquiry's conclusions that he wasn't able to access all cabinet conferences. right because what what are we hoping this inquiry will accomplish what is it that we need to learn from this in your view? Well, I think what we need to learn is we need to understand who knew what and when in the 
Trudeau government about Beijing's foreign interference. We need to understand whether or not the government ignored the advice of intelligence agencies, ignored the advice of experts in order for, for simply for its own partisan gain. Um, so I think that's one of the things we need to get to the bottom of. Um, I think it's important in a democracy that you know we, we get clear answers as to what exactly happened. Right, and I think that that in, in turn can then help shape our, our approach to all of this going forward. And in that sense, like what's been lost in, in these wasted months? Well, what's been lost is eroding public confidence in the government's ability to protect our national security and our interdemocratic uh, institutions. Um, you know, in fact, this has dragged on since last November, almost a year ago, I think is evidence that, uh, you know, has contributed to a loss of public confidence. So, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this so that the people involved, if they make mistakes, are held accountable. Uh, we need to bring back some more accountability into this country when it comes to people who in public office make mistakes. Yeah, and Canada's not alone in dealing with it, this level of interference, but I, I get the sense maybe that our allies are also watching to see how we deal with all of this. Uh, it's interesting to note you're going to be offering some testimony this month. A U.S. Congressional uh, Committee is uh, holding some hearings into this matter. What's the significance of that, do you think? Well, I think uh, what's happening is that many of our closest Democratic allies are taking note of you know, the, Trude- the Trudeau government's handling of national security issues, handling of foreign interference uh, coming from authoritarian states, um, and they want to better understand how, you know, how this is taking place and what measures can be taken to protect their democracies against this, this foreign interference. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, this, this mishandling of this foreign interference file by the Trudeau government has been, you know, damaging to Canada's reputation on the international stage, particularly with our closest intelligence partners. Now, of course, as Canadians know, I mean, you, you've become a part of this story as as examples of this sort of interference. Now, as we learned this year, twice you've been uh, targeted here. I, I guess maybe there's something to be said for the fact that you didn't have to learn about it in the media uh, the second time around. Uh, as we found out a few months ago, Global Affairs Canada had informed you about uh, another attempt to target you, but very disconcerting nonetheless, I would imagine. Yeah, it is disconcerting, but I'm not going to be intimidated by any authoritarian state that wants to that's seeking to, you know, to, to shut me down. Um, I'm going to continue to speak up for the fundamental values that Canadians believe in, you know, fundamental values about a belief in our democracy, about a belief in freedoms and liberties, and about a belief that we all have to follow the rules, that we all have to follow the rules-based uh, system that's been put in place for many decades. Um, we can't allow other foreign states, other countries, to meddle uh, in our democracy and break these rules. And there has to be accountability. Right. And I mean, that, that kind of speaks to the heart of the matter. I mean, you know, why China would be doing this in the first place? It's in large part to sort of push policy in a certain direction and, and try to intimidate or discourage those who, who would criticize China's foreign and, and domestic policies. Yeah, I think in a free and democratic society, Canadians here in Canada on Canadian soil, should be freely should be able to freely speak up in defense of what they believe in. They should be able to freely debate various issues. Uh, we cannot allow uh, authoritarian states like the People's Republic of China to put a chill on free speech here in Canada. And they've been doing that through coercion, through clandestine tactics, through intimidation, and through disinformation. And we we've got to shut that kind of stuff down and make it clear 
that people who conduct these kinds of covert activities here in Canadian soil will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Have we been speaking out enough about these issues? And I mean, you know, case in point, we had the environment minister in Beijing just recently, and it didn't really seem that he was inclined to want to raise any of these issues while he was there. I mean, you know, was that a mistake, first of all? Was that a missed opportunity then to press these issues? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, he failed to raise the issue of foreign interference. I think it was also, it's also a real mistake for Canada to lend its good name and reputation uh, to a country that is emitting ever-increasing amounts of emissions. China's burning more coal than the rest of the world combined. It is uh, massively increasing its emissions through deliberately constructing many, many, many new coal-fired electricity plants. And it's, it seems hell-bent on increasing emissions for the next for the balance of this decade. And so why on earth Canada would lend its good name uh, to co-chair a Beijing-led organization to give Beijing the cover it wants to continue this kind of environmental uh, environmental destruction is beyond me. Uh, I think it's one thing to talk to the government in Beijing about emissions, about climate change. It's a whole other thing to say that we're going to work with them, lend our good name, and co-chair an organization that gives them cover to continue to do this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, it certainly speaks to a need, I think, for a reset on foreign policy and China policy specifically. And I know this weekend is going to be a lot of policy discussion for your party at the convention in Quebec City. Is there an opportunity think, this weekend to have some of that conversation around foreign policy? What, what are you hoping to see on that front? Yeah, there's been policy debates on foreign policy and defense and security policy. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are not going to be able to, Canada cannot have a, a strong foreign policy, a strong defense and security policy if we don't get this economy moving again. We have a massive affordability crisis in Canada. We've got a housing crisis. We all know that you know, the price of houses in Canada has doubled over the last several years. We know that uh, the price of rent has doubled over the last several years. We've, you know, we've recently heard from the big banks that hundreds of thousands of Canadian families are falling behind in their mortgage payments. They're not even paying the interest on their mortgages, and that unpaid interest is being added to their principal. It is truly an economic crisis. And so we need to get this economy back on track. We need to make things more affordable for Canadians. We need to get the government to get a handle on its own books so that we can ensure that the the economy and Canadians are prospering and we have the the tax revenues we need to pay for things like a robust defense and security policy, like a foreign policy that will stand up for Canada. Indeed. Well, we'll see what transpires this weekend on some of those discussions. And of course, we'll all be watching with great interest uh, once this inquiry gets underway. Michael Chong, really appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. That's uh, Conservative MP, Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong talking about uh, our relationship with China, foreign policy issues, and specifically uh, the calling now, finally, of this inquiry. Welcome to this hour of the program. Welcome to this Friday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Thanks for spending some time with us here. We'll get some of your phone calls coming up in this hour. A lot to get to today. A lot going on today. Uh, We are at the uh, beginning of another school year. What we fully hope and expect will be uh, another year. I guess a second consecutive year without any kind of learning disruption. 
Now, keep in mind, I mean, we saw it last fall and winter. We'll probably see it again. A confluence of flu and COVID and RSV. I mean, there will be disruption at an individual level. Kids will get sick and have to spend some time at home. But in terms of actual learning disruption where schools are, are closing or, or in-school learning is suspended, feels like a long time ago. But, you know, we saw that even in, in calendar 2022 in January, uh, the Christmas break was basically extended uh, sort of at the height of the Omicron wave. And we'd seen plenty of school closures before that. So as we head into a new school year, there's still some lingering questions about the impact of all of that. And how much did that set back those who are still in school? Well, a new report attempts to to quantify all of this, to understand how much learning was lost and what the impact of all of that was. It's called the Forgotten Demographic, assessing the possible benefits and serious costs of COVID-19 school closures on Canadian children. Much more at FraserInstitute.org. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the co-author of that report, Paige McPherson, is Associate Director of Education Policy at the Fraser Institute. Paige, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It is interesting because, you know, I think we heard many times, you know, through through the early part of the pandemic, for sure, you know, that schools should be the last to close and first to open. But uh, in practice, it, it turned out to be anything but. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in Alberta, schools were closed at a provincial level at a minimum of 22 weeks. Um, and and you're, we're talking about a long period of time. I think that, you know, everybody sort of agrees that early on we faced a lot of uncertainty. We really weren't sure who was at risk by age. We really weren't sure how much the virus was going to spread and in what settings. Um, so I think that we can sort of give policymakers and governments the benefit of the doubt, certainly for the first few months. Um, but, but quickly, we did get data on uh, the impact of COVID-19 on children. We learned that children were at vanishingly low health risk uh, from COVID-19. We also learned um, that that school closures, their, their governments would have been given plenty of time to look at the existing data. And that's what we did in this paper on school closures. A lot of research had been done around um, school closures in the con- context of influenza and of other coronaviruses like MERS and SARS. And what we found and what governments should have found is that there was really no good evidence to support closing schools. And so once that um, fog of uncertainty had lifted and governments had time to sort of figure things out, they really should have had the data inform their response. And that's what really didn't happen. We saw schools across Canada closed um, in in most cases right up until 2022, disrupting um, many years of school for children. Um, and, And the government really just did not allow that data to to get them to make those better policy decisions. And that's why we say that kids really were the forgotten demographic. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned those first few months of uncertainty, and I, I think that's where at least, the, you know, the bulk of this these closures occurred. I mean, we had basically March, April, May, and June of 2020 where schools closed, but it wasn't exclusively in those months. So to what extent was it concentrated there, but where where else did we see it? Well, yeah, and then we saw school closures happen again um, with, for example, when the Omicron came out, schools closed again. Um, really, we had disrupted learning for close to three school years uh, for kids. It, school was not normal. There was virtual school. We all know that there that different children face different um, impacts um, from virtual school. Some kids did just fine. Others really struggled. Um, we, we had seen severe absenteeism. That's when kids uh, are actually out of school more than they're in school. We saw spikes 
that was recorded in uh, in Ontario, and and we've seen from because this is all it's all new. We're just starting, of course, to look, and that's sort of what we wanted to do in this paper. Mm-hmm. We want to get this sort of preliminary idea of how kids are doing. So we drew on some data from the U.S. where there's been some more research done into this stuff. One of the things, as I mentioned, severe absenteeism. We saw that um, in the U.S. There was an initial year following school closures when there, there was some school closures for shorter periods of time there where there was a spike in severe absenteeism, but actually the year after it got worse. So kids who were out of school more than they're in school, those numbers actually increased the following year. And that's consistent with what we saw when it comes to mental health in kids as well. Whereas the older demographics that physically in terms of their health were much more likely to be at risk of COVID-19, unlike kids who face almost no risk, um, their anxiety tended to peak in terms of the survey data that was done um, by Statistics Canada and others uh, right across the country. Their anxiety peaked early on in the COVID pandemic during those periods of uncertainty, but then it it tapered off and they did not face the same levels of self-reported severe anxiety that youth in Canada face. They were the most likely, youth kids were the most likely to report that they were experiencing severe anxiety or depression as a result of school closures and lockdowns during the COVID pandemic. And their anxiety actually peaked in later years, in 2021 and 2022 um, following, you know, the periods of the, the the real heightened fear and uncertainty as a result of the pandemic. So that's sort of one of the tragic impacts that we're seeing is that um, even though, of course, as you say, the school closures were concentrated at the very beginning, and but we did see them extend for several school years beyond where governments sort of um, ebbed and flowed with those uh, school closure policies, and that really resulted in long-lasting impacts. Yeah. Now, I mean, we, we saw this right across the country, although it is it is provincial jurisdiction. And so it, it wasn't exactly the same in other provinces in terms of the amount of disruption. I think uh, this study points to 110 uh, school days well, at minimum, I, I guess, in Alberta. But how, how does Alberta then compare to other provinces here? Yeah, that's a great question, because um, Alberta actually, in terms of the West, had very long periods of school closures because British Columbia, which was the lowest uh, in Canada in terms of the weeks of provincial school closures, was only 10 weeks versus oh. Alberta, which was 22 weeks. So that's a, a quite a significant difference. Saskatchewan, 15 weeks. Again, um, so they were the third lowest, I guess you could say, in, in Canada. Um, again, like a lot longer than uh, than what Alberta saw at 22 weeks. Um, so, so. When you're comparing, I mean, Ontario had the longest school closures, 27 weeks. Um, Nova Scotia, where I live, 25 weeks was was the next longest. And, and, and certainly here in Atlantic Canada, the school closures extended for a long period of time. But Alberta actually saw quite long periods of school closures and learning disruption uh, compared to the, the other Western provinces, certainly the neighboring provinces. And we do have some preliminary data from Alberta that sort of gives us a little peek into the window of how kids are doing and what we can see um, in terms of the learning loss. Uh, in grade six, as an example, we saw that in Alberta, um, there, there were minimal, uh, minimum rather uh, declines when we look at the provincial achievement test scores. Um, and obviously, we were, we're not going to know the full impact of um, of these school closures probably for decades on kids. But but as the data rolls out, obviously, this is something that we're still going to track. But we did see that the Calgary Board of Education, as an example, in 2022, they noted that the number of students who passed the grade 12 diploma exam um, in math 
declined by 18 percent. Um, so that's a significant decline. And the, the number of grade 12 students who passed the English exam declined by 9%. So given the importance of the diploma exams in Alberta, as you know, listeners will know, yeah. that's, those are quite significant declines that they're facing. So the learning loss that kids are, are facing now, in addition to the mental health impact, they're real. And you, the, the studies that has, have been done on missed classroom time and learning loss in general shows that this is not just going to be a temporary blip. When you have uh, years of effective schooling lost, taken from kids, it actually can stand to reduce their lifetime earnings. That can stand to thereby reduce GDP for the society they live in. There are long-term impacts that kids will face. Uh, and, and so it's very important that governments, you know, although they, they didn't allow the data to inform their response at the time, they take a good hard look at, at what kids are facing now and what it will mean for the rest of those kids' lives. Well, I think you touched on something, too, and, and the study looks at it, issues around inequality. And I mean, you know, the, all of this probably hurt some kids more than it hurt others, or maybe certain households were better to adapt to all of these circumstances than to others. So so the impact could have and maybe did disproportionately fall on maybe households with, with lower incomes, for example. Yeah, uh, well, what we, I mean, it, some of it is common sense, right? We, we know that if your mom was working at a grocery store and that was one of two or three jobs that she worked. She couldn't stay home. Um, it, she had to go to work and it would be a lot more difficult, especially if, if you are a young child, for your mom to there, you know, stand by your side when you're doing virtual school and really be successful at it versus parents who were able sort of, you know, the laptop class who were able to be at home and parents who, uh, you know, have the patience to, to help their kids and, and help them through it. I'm sure that there are kids, some kids who actually found that learning from home on an individual basis with a parent was better for them than school. But yeah. Of course, that, that is probably something that happened to some kids. But others, it would have been much, much more difficult. And that's where, you know, these severe absenteeism numbers um, are, are just so tragic. And there was some, um, there's certainly been research done in the United States There was uh, that was showing that the kids who are more vulnerable in those lower income demographics definitely have faced greater um, declines in terms of their learning loss than higher income kids or kids who were already performing well in school. There's also some research from Quebec that has been done um, that shows that kids have actually Based on significant declines in in their reading and literacy um, in terms of the test scores, but that the kids who are already doing well didn't really fall too far behind. The kids who were struggling, they're the ones who face significant declines. And it is just so much more difficult then for teachers and those who are in the schools to help catch those kids up. Right. And as you say, the lasting impact of that, I mean, we, we've come off of a year of, of more or less normalcy and then heading into what, what hopefully will be another year. But it's probably unrealistic to think that one or two years uh, undoes all of this or makes up for all of this. No, absolutely. And, you know, we, we passed kids through the system now. Um, kids are not repeating grades in the same way that that used to happen. If, it, if a child is struggling, uh, like we know, for example, that grade three is a very important year in terms of learning to read. If you cannot learn, if you don't know how to read by the grade three year, it's going to be very challenging for you because just taking this example, that's when you switch from learning to read to reading to learn. You're going to have to read through your math problems and your science problems. And there's so many things that are going to become more difficult for you if you can't read past that critical year. Well, there are a lot of kids 
who were in grade one, two, three, um, when school closures happened. And they had these periods of, of disrupted schooling for many, many years. And so you can imagine how if those kids are still struggling to read because they, they weren't able to grasp it when they were at home, they really needed that in-classroom support. Um, now they're at an even more significant disadvantage. And, uh, and it, is, it is a really, it's going to be challenging for those kids and those families to catch up and as they're moving through the school system and you know you're being pushed through um it's i think it's going to be quite a quite a significant challenge and we'll have to track the provincial test scores and international test scores as well um to to really i think grasp how much of an impact this has had on certain cohorts right so as as to then the implications and the lessons from this i mean it seems like part of this is recognizing those issues and and maybe doing more now to try to address that but i i would imagine too there are also some implications going forward in in shaping you know future decisions when we're faced with these kinds of issues yeah absolutely i think you know when when you're talking about it through um the lens of, of policymakers, whether you're talking about education policy or, or you know, public health policy, um, we we say that there that this was the forgotten demographic because even though we learned that kids were at a low risk of of health impacts, even though there was already data showing that learning loss would be likely from missed classroom time, that kids would likely face um, impacts that span beyond the academic, you know, into mental health. Uh, and, and we did see those those spikes in mental health, like I said, more likely in the younger demographics. But even things um, and, and there was, you know, Calgary hospitals that came forward and said they're seeing a real uptick in, in suicide um, attempt visits from youth. Kids went through a, a significantly difficult time um, and really there was not a lot of policy at the time to address the learning loss that kids were facing or, or try to stop the learning loss that kids were facing. If we're being really, really generous in terms of when did the data actually inform policymakers that kids were at such a low risk um, in terms of their health from COVID-19, December 2020 really should have been when they, okay, there's very clear um, research that has been compiled from a number of places showing that this demographic really is not impacted. And yet, you know, policymakers didn't change their course. They continued to close schools beyond that. And kids, you know, continue to face those impacts in the following year on their mental health uh, and on their education. So it's also a little bit scandalous that there's really not a national accounting of school closures. There's really, you know, for this paper, we had to dig into a number of sources to even find out how many weeks of school uh, kids missed. And when I give that number of the 22 weeks of school that, um, that, that schools were closed in Alberta, that's just a provincial number. Any parent, and I know well as a parent because my kid was out of school during school closures, uh, if you had the sniffles, you weren't going to school. If there were two kids in your kid's class who, or in your kid's school in some cases that had COVID-19, that was considered an outbreak and your school was closed. So that's an absolute minimum number. Um, so the fact that governments now are, are not, you know, going back and saying, okay, here's what happened, there needs, there's really no reckoning for that. Um, and that's unfortunate. So what, going forward, when we're creating policy, yes, like, let's, let's think about what happened and, and let's try to think hard about why kids were forgotten. Some important points. Much more is mentioned. FraserInstitute.org page. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's talk.
start with the bait that we've uh, visited on, on this program and is happening uh, right across the country, particular in the provinces of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, where governments have adopted policies for schools regarding gender and pronoun issues. That basically, and I know there are some differences between what uh, both provinces have implemented, but the basic premise is that if schools are going to uh, call a student a different name, if a student wants to to change their name or the pronouns they use at school, uh, if they're under 16, the parents would be made aware of that. Now, this is in the name of, of parental rights, so the parents know what's going on with their kids, and polls suggest that there's a lot of support for that. But there is concern, and I think some legitimate concern, about those kinds of situations maybe where students are afraid of sharing that information, where they fear the repercussions uh, of that being disclosed to their parents. And while that might be the minority, hopefully the minority of, of cases, it's not something schools can overlook. So where do we find some middle ground? Can we find some middle ground? Does it have to be all or nothing? when it comes to always alerting parents or always respecting the privacy of students. Well, our next guest, making a very interesting case for a middle ground compromise approach that might be the best path forward on these issues, uh, Adam Zivo. Uh, he's a writer and reporter, and he's got an interesting uh, piece up at nationalpost.com, what he refers to as a don't help, don't tell solution to uh, all of this. Adam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you making some time for us here today. So, first of all, I mean, you know, you've kind of been watching this debate, and maybe this has all been brewing for a while. What do you make of the point it's gotten to here? Well, I think that um, starting in the mid-2010s, a lot of youth started identifying as trans or non-binary. And that was a little bewildering for many schools because they didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And in the late 2010s, most people believed that... Uh, any person who said they were trans were authentically so, and that if you didn't automatically affirm a youth identity, then that would put them at risk of self-harm or suicide. Uh, so many schools just said, okay, let's affirm these youth. Uh, there seems to be no downsides. We don't want to hurt them, and we want to you know, give them the best life possible, and we want to even like do that even if it means not telling their parents. However, more recently, uh, it's become much more understood that many youth falsely self-identify as trans to cope with trauma or mental illness. And and that's something that we've seen a lot in uh, the United Kingdom, where the Tavistock Gender Clinic, which used to be the leading clinic in that country, closed down due to grossly irresponsible care. And dozens of former clinicians who worked there talked about how kids who had serious mental health issues were basically being transitioned right away with no caution no safeguarding at all, and how oftentimes lesbian, gay, and bisexual kids who were more effeminates or, you know, gender nonconforming were being transitioned. It was kind of like a conversion therapy. So our understanding of youth transition has changed, and so school policies are are, are sort of adapting accordingly. Right, and so now we're, we're at this point here. Well, yeah, so, you know, now, now that we have this different conception of how youth are transitioning, we have to come up with new policies because it's no longer the case that youth transition is understood to be, you know, uniformly beneficial. We understand that it has some risks and that it may harm some, some kids. Um, and as a result, it's very obvious that parental rights need to be respected here. If a youth is under the age of 16, a school shouldn't facilitate a social transition without parental consent. That's a major psychosocial intervention that has some risks. 
so now New Brunswick and, and uh, Saskatchewan, they're now encoding laws where if you want to change your name or your pronouns and you're under 16, then you have to have parental consent. Um, and you know what? That makes sense. And that's a position which is broadly supported. Only 14% of Canadians believe that parents should be neither aware of nor have to consent to these changes. And even uh, Canadians between the ages of 18 and 24 years old, who are the most progressive age bracket on this, on this issue, only 24% of them you know, also believe that parents should have no right to know or consent to these changes. So this is something that's very popular across the political spectrum. But unfortunately, uh, some progressive voices are, are uh, arguing that this is a far right position to have. Mm-hmm. That if you believe parental rights here, that you are, you know, essentially the equivalent of a neo-Nazi, which is absurd. Right. So how do we how do we move forward here in a way, though? And this gets to kind of the point you're making where there is still the opportunity that in situations where uh, there are youth who are concerned about this kind of disclosure, that, that that can also be respected in all of this. Well, that's the thing. Right. So um, many people who are against these policies, they'll say that this is a far right thing and that's inaccurate. They'll say, oh, you'll be harming trans youth, and that's inaccurate because the evidence that backs up those claims is often very contested and misleading. Um, But they do, as you mentioned, have this very important point, which is what do we do with youth who are in legitimate danger if they are outed to their families? Because they might come from deeply uh, unaccepting families where they might be kicked out of their homes for being, I guess, gender nonconforming, for, you know, potentially identifying as trans. And, and that's a very serious risk. I think about 20 to 50% of homeless youth in Canada identifies LGBTQ. So I think the fair solution here is to adopt a don't help, don't tell policy where schools uh, are forbidden from assisting with a student social transition under the age of 16 without parental consent. But at the same time, they are not allowed to inform parents of any gender non-conforming behavior without student consent. So that seems to protect everyone. It seems to be a fairly fair compromise. Right, and and you know, as you note, uh, it, it's it's not going to make everybody happy. But I don't know if there's a way of dealing with all of this that that really will. Well, that's the thing. This is not a black and white issue, and both sides here bring up very legitimate legitimate concerns. Um, and and when you have something like this, where you have two legitimate sides clashing. You need to find a compromise, and a compromise by its definition is not going to make everyone happy. But um, I think that this seems to be the fairest way to address this, um, because you cannot create a system where you worry about being kicked out of their homes or abused because they are outed to their families without consent. And you cannot create a system where schools facilitate transitioning children's transitions without informing parents. So between those two extremes lies a fair middle ground. And thankfully, that seems to be what Canadian policymakers are moving towards. Because when you look at New, when you look at New Brunswick, their policy is that, yeah, if you're under 16, you need to get parental consent to change your pronoun or your name. But if you request that and uh, you don't have parental consent, they're not going to tell your parents about it. They're going to respect your privacy and then connect you with a social worker or a psychologist who can then help the students 
um, come up with a plan on how to tell their parents in the future should they choose to. So what they're doing there is they're encouraging harmonious relationships between parents and kids, but at the same time respecting student privacy, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, in contrast, in the United States, you have harsher policies, such as a few that are coming out in some school districts in California, where uh, school board employees are mandated to tell parents about any request to be acknowledged as a different gender for a student uh, within three days, regardless of what the student says. And I think that that's obviously too harsh. So how, how might this work in practice then? So you, you talk about a situation where I, I guess a child comes forward and, and says even something as simple as I, I would prefer to be referred to as they as a pronoun as opposed to he or she. So the school then would not necessarily notify the parents unless the student was okay with that. But without the parental notification, then that, that other pronoun wouldn't be used. Exactly. So in the classroom, the student's old name would still be used. The student's old pronouns would still be used. Uh, so in every formal setting in the school, their gender experimentation would not be acknowledged or formally supported. Um, but if the student wants to go and play with pronouns and play with names amongst their peers in, in a formal setting, then sure, I mean, that's fine. Uh, students informally experiment with their identities all the time. Uh, essentially, what the school is doing is removing itself from that battleground and neither aiding nor hindering in any way and, uh, and just letting things be. Right, because and I think you know teachers become aware of these these things. I mean, it's it would be apparent to a teacher, uh, you know, it would be clear if if uh, a student is all of a sudden being referred to by peers as a different name or a different pronoun, just as you know a, a, a teacher would see that if there's uh, you know two boys holding hands in the hallway, that they would know. Okay, well maybe that uh, or both of them are are actually gay. That doesn't mean they they run to the phone to call the parents to, to, you know, teachers aren't supposed to be spies, basically. Exactly. The thing is, you have to give students a sense of safety to be able to experiment with their identities outside of parental supervision. And I know that some parents can be uncomfortable with that. But the fact is that your kids are their their own human beings. They're not property. Um, but I think that it's fair to expect it's fair to expect schools not to participate in and, and assist social transitions without parental knowledge. So I, I think it's a fair compromise here. And, and if you want to make a comparison, I think that we can think about, let's say, uh, young Muslim girls who come from very devout families, where at home they have to wear a hijab, uh, there are a lot of social restrictions, and then when they go to school, they can take off their hijab and put on makeup and explore a more Western identity. Right. Um, and in that case, you know, there's a there's a real need to protect their privacy there. And I think you can make some comparison there for gender non-conforming students as well. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.